Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Here we are, back again. Thank you guys for returning to another episode of Curious, my pod. What a dream. I feel like I should do maybe a bit of a check-in. Is that what, maybe? I don't know. Is that selfish of me to want to to imagine that you're interested in what goes on in my brain and how I'm feeling my day-to-day life? Well, you know, so be it. Listen, you're here, right? You're not going to go through the work of finding another podcast to listen to, are you? You're probably driving. It's not safe to look down at your phone. Just let this play out. You know, take a chance. Maybe around minute 37, you'll be like, I really, I'm glad I stayed. This is quite the listening experience. Anyway, I'm great. I, uh, I got back from vacation last week. I know I told you I was on a big fancy vacation because I'm a big fancy person. Um, and it's amazing how you come back from these vacations and you're like, I'm just, I'm a new, I'm a new man in a new world. And I'm going to look at things through a whole new set of glasses because I've really reset the old clock. I've put into perspective what's important. And now with this newfound information, I will go forth and just pollinate the world with joy. And then like three days in all the neuroses comes back (laughs) and all the tropes and the, and the pitfalls of your everyday existence just comes creeping in. And then you're like, Oh, there I am. There's Josh. That's the guy I remember. Not carefree, jovial, fun, ballyhoo, you know, Hawaii Josh. No, this, this, this Josh, I know here he is. All right. Worried about everything. Terrified of the past upset about the future. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I dramatize my, my, uh, my, my neuroses for, for the pod, you know, because the reality is I'm quasi happy. I'm relatively content. And is that just the goal or what? I mean, I don't trust people that are overtly happy. I don't get it. I don't trust their Instagram pages when they have affirmations and they look great and they're at the beach with their six packs. That's not me. I want to see, you know, joy to me is carrying around an extra eight to 22 pounds of body fat, give or take someone who cheats on their diet a few times a week, but you know what? They go to work, they come home, good person. You know what I mean? They provide for their family. They get in the occasional road rage and maybe they secretly smoke behind their family's back and they go over to the side of the house or they sneak out for a five minute coffee break at work and they puff a couple camel lights because it just helps turn the volume down a little bit of that loud cheer of the world and they have that moment of contentment, that deep breath and they just go, I'm okay in this moment. And then they go back to their family and they trudge and they show up. They suit up and they show up. Oh my God. I I don't even know the tangent that just happened, but thank you for staying this long. Anyway, today's episode is a person who I just love, Paget Brewster. She played my mom on my show Grandfathered and I do... Um, I, trust me, I've taken notice of the fact that the last four out of the five 
pods that I've put up have all been people that had to do with grandfathered. So forgive me. I think that's it for now. There's a couple more coming, but I will space it out and bring you other people that don't just have to do with that time in my life. But it was a very good and special time. And I met some incredible people like Paget and and, you know, they all wanted to be on the pod. What can I say? You know, they were beating my door down. <laughs> That's not true. Um, anyway, I love Paget. She is just the real deal, an incredible actress, a great person. And I feel lucky that I got to spend um, a season of a show working with her and then I can call her a friend. And we actually recorded this a few days ago. I have a few pod episodes that are sort of in the bank that I wanted to slowly roll out so that I'd be prepared in case there was a week that went by when I couldn't get a guest. But I wanted to release this one immediately because Paget and I are sort of commenting on something pretty topical that went on really recently in the news. And I don't know if I'm going to make a regular thing of that, but it just happened to come out and I thought it was interesting. So please enjoy Paget. No, absolutely. Nothing will be left in. Sick. Yet yet another reason why I love Padgett Brewster is that I just said something where, well, maybe we should wait and not talk about this on the pod. And your response was, do it. Do it. Let's do it. it. <laughs> let's, if you don't like it. Let's just live. <laughs> Roseanne this morning, uh, star of the biggest comeback ever, biggest show on TV, tweeted something about one of, President Barack Obama's former aides. No. No. The Twitter storm was immediate. Wanda Sykes, a producer and writer on the show, on immediately... On her show, on Roseanne. Left the show. Oh, she walked. She said, I'm done. And then an hour ago, ABC canceled the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, there's so much to react to. There's so much. And it, it's because on the one hand, I, I watched I think how many episodes have aired? Six, I think I've watched four. Right. And I was really impressed. I really was. I was really impressed. Right. With what they were doing and the fact that this is a, a, a lower middle class American family, and she, she's a Trump supporter, and yeah. the Laurie Metcalf character is not. I thought that was really smart because that's that's who that Roseanne character would be a Trump supporter. Right. I didn't know what Roseanne's personal politics were. But that's a terrible I guess now we do. Now we know Roseanne's politics and uh, this god how oh it's so, I, I agree with you in the sense of... All I, those people lost their jobs that they just got back, that they were so happy to do. I know. Because of insults. Why? Why? What's the point? What was, what, what? It's just too much right now. I really, I'm not, I don't do anything political on social media, but I'm barely on social media. But I don't think anyone should care what I think or who I vote for. Or I couldn't agree I more. I have friends who go crazy and they believe in it and they... They're very active and very political, and their stance is if you're not saying or doing anything, you're not helping fix the problem. Yeah, you're part of the problem. But I you... think part of the problem right now is an over-politicized atmosphere. A hundred percent, and I also think that the beauty and the brilliance of social media, that where it's given people who never had a voice a voice, is it's also its biggest problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is that too many people have a voice? I said this initially, and it's not in the same world, but the whole Kanye of it all a month ago, I was like, 
I don't care. Like, I love your music, Kanye, but I'm not looking for you to lead me spiritually, politically, or in any other sense than allowing me to dance at the club. Right, <laughs> right. That's, that's all I want from you, Kanye. Can't, can't you give that to us, please? But there is no end of the politicization. Politicization? It's Politi- probably a word. I don't maybe. It could be. Where you, can you say that about Woody Allen? Are you allowed now in society to say, I don't know what happened with your daughter. <laughs> right. But I like your movies. Right. Or Polanski. Or like, w- w- now it's, now... Roseanne's politics have ended a show that was a long time coming and coming back and everyone was excited and it's just I don't know that's part of the social media I have a I have I understand the value of it but I think I also understand the danger of it and I and it scares me well first and foremost and my buddy said this best who's another actor he's like we're all in fucking glass houses yeah so you can't cast stones like and everyone that's ever jumped on these trains and and by the way people have gone down that were completely despicable and yet, true yeah and yet I never felt comfortable publicly going after anyone because I knew that we are all so fallible and capable of fucking up not to the length and the degree that some of these tyrants have fallen but we're all capable of having a bad moment where we lack judgment that could be publicly captured and I would pray that if it if I fell victim to that that people wouldn't jump on the band bandwagon to publicly disown me yeah you know yeah and, and the Roseanne and and these kind of things I don't think fall, fall into that category but still I'm reticent to comment on anything ever mm-hmm that's sort of how I feel now yeah and and, and Yet I understand the drive. I don't know. Does everyone live in a glass house or is it just people who have their actual name attached to what they're saying? Right. Because anonymous, angry, no. hateful trolls can say anything to anyone at any time without repercussion. Right. It's if you are who you are on social media, then you have a responsibility and you are held accountable for the things you say even this today okay so the bachelorette started last night yes the guy she gave the first impression rose to Mm. today it comes out that he's been liking all of these anti-feminist uh uh, homophobic anti-immigrant memes and pictures and comments and his account was made private right before i think he started shooting bachelorette but he he now now a guy on a reality show, like he's toast. Oh, finished. But they've already finished shooting. So what if he ends up engaged to her? <laughs> Wouldn't that and be? And now the day after the first episode airs, everyone knows this guy is a homophobic, <laughs> feminism-hating, anti-immigration dude. What did that ABC board meeting look like this morning? I mean, I can't imagine. Between that and Roseanne, Shit. See, here's the... Th- oh, oh, my God, God! You're right in one day! Oh, God! <laughs> wait, though, wait, though. This is where I go as a conspiracy theorist who knows more. we only don't know is what if they love it? What if this is the best thing that ever happened? Just because of all the publicity. Yes. Yeah, all the eyes on the what if they're? What if ABC is waiting for a public outcry against the cancellation of Roseanne so that then they bring Roseanne back again... It's possible. I mean, what if they're thrilled about, they need ratings for Bachelorette. Sure. So 
does this help them? Now it's everyone's going to watch and see if she's going to fall in love with the guy who's who hates Hillary Clinton, who yeah. she supports. Who's a closet misogynist slash... Yeah. yeah. Homophobe. I, it's so possible. There's some grand wizardry going on at the I network. I don't know. I, you know, but then, like, I'm about all conspiracy theories in that respect are like, you have to believe that, like... What is, I heard someone say, don't confuse stupid, stupidity from malevolence. And, oh, yeah. Oh, I know, agree with that. Like, Absolutely. I just think people are so dumb. Yeah, sometimes people are dumb and they're not trying to hurt anybody. They're just dumb. They're just so dumb. They're not actively cruel. Right. The, you're, I, I, listen, I am not f- forgiving racism. No. Racism is wrong. We all, but I think if you're a little kid, Growing up in a racist family, if you at some point in your adult life don't see the in- inherent flaws in racism, mm. maybe you're just dumb. Right. Maybe you're just dumb. It's not even... And you can't reason with stupidity. Yeah. No, you can't. You can't bake So it could be indoctrination. It could be... You know what I mean? So I think there are... I think some people... Honestly, I think, I think there are some guys who have been... I, I mean, I can't think of an example. Flirty or touchy or, you know, sure. not grab you, not attack, not molest, not get someone fired because they won't sleep with you. But I think there are some actors that are very, you know, touchy, grabby, flirty, sure. and they've never seen anything wrong with it, and they've never been punished for it. So I think this whole thing... Of, of all the different degrees of predator or thoughtlessness or ignorance or men just not being aware that that they can behave in a way that's undermining to women. I think a lot of guys were really surprised. Like, wait, what? Uh, what? Absolutely. It's I'm a not new normal. To, I'm not supposed to hug you good morning? I'm not supposed to... I think it's been a shock, a real shock. And I think a lot of assholes have been dispatched with but it there's also a, the swing of the pendulum where now it's so all-encompassing yeah understanding a different way in which to to sort of conduct yourself because I, I even for me in being with my wife for the last seven years and you know it's it's been the exclusive intimate relationship that I've actually had with a person of the opposite sex, mm-hmm. like to to educate me on things that I could never have been hip to being like a white male walking around for my entire life. And even she said, and she grew up in like in a beautiful, rich beach town that at times being a pretty girl at two o'clock in the after, afternoon walking down the street that she would feel unsafe or uncomfortable mm-hmm. because of a random cat call or a guy staring at her mm-hmm. Or just uh, yeah, influencing her her actions in some way because she felt put upon by them, and it it was no I don't think twice I'll go out at two in the morning and feel completely safe and within my right, and I didn't understand that for someone like her and for many other women that it was something that they live with on a day to day basis at times. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 overtures of uh, from men and unwanted. Mm-hmm. And it, the scary thing is, it's most consistent for almost every woman between the ages of fourteen and twenty five. Like right. that's when you are the most sought cat after, called, vulnerable. Uh, it's easier to manipulate a younger girl. 
right who's still coming into her own and figuring out the world so it's that's what's really scary about it is it's really teenage girls that are that are that are most vulnerable and how and imagine how impressionable we are in our, our teenage years and building our self-worth and our view of others and our sexuality and all these things and knowing that for many women they're all these things are are sort of coming together while these things are going on. So how does that influence them into their 20s and their 30s? Yeah, I, well, again, social media to, to me looks like a nightmare for that age group. Right. Just cyberbullying and this is what you're supposed to look like and filters on your photos and apps that can make you look skinnier and duck face selfies. And it's Terrifying. all, it just looks awful to me. And I'm so thankful I, I grew up at a time when we didn't, we didn't even have pagers. <laughs> yeah. We didn't have computers. We didn't have... I mean, I was born in 69, so my youth was 1969 to 1987 I graduated high school. Just big there hair. There was nothing. There was nothing big hair. Yeah. Bad jackets. VCRs. Oh, Good barely. Times. You were <laughs> yeah. rich if you had a VCR. Oh. You were so rich if you had a VCR. Yeah, life was good. It was great, I got to say. I mean, I know every single generation always says, oh, well... Back in my Back day. Back in my day, it was, <laughs> it was harder, but it was better. And I know that, and I see that now, and I understand that. Because right. I remember people thinking, oh, you know, when I was listening to The Cure, mm. parent, you know, the, my parent aged, my parents' friends were like, oh, that's devil music. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, goddamn where, Cure. Yeah, but that's what they said about Elvis. Like, I right. understand that every generation, but to me, again, social media is the most fascinating invention that there has been and will be for decades. I, right. I, I think more profound on human behavior and learning and relationships, as, as well as ev revenue streams, you can make a living. Oh, yeah. I have friends who do it. They advertise stuff on Instagram or uh, Twitter, and they get paid for it. Yeah, direct marketing. That's incredible. Good oh, yeah. for them. I totally support it. I, I, I don't necessarily want to look at... All the products being pitched, it's because, right. uh, but I'm sure I've bought, I'm sh I'm certain I've purchased something because someone talked about it on social media. I guarantee it's happened. Oh, the brilliance of direct marketing too, with like Instagram especially, because they know to the letter of like what pages you follow and what you comment on and just what you spend the most time. If you spend 11 seconds on this photo as opposed to two on this one. Oh my God. They I have all that analytic. They will data. have, I will receive like ads for certain things where like in a day I'll get 10 ads and all those things are like, I need that. A stabilizer for your phone that you can run with it and shoot video. That's incredible. Or like, but you would use that. I want that. And yeah. they were so smart. They were like, we know what Josh likes. I got not like, they're going to see that I'm a nerd and that I'm kind of bored and that's <laughs> it. Like, that these things happen. Yeah. But, and I think it also instills in kid, kids, especially this idea of FOMO, which is like fear of missing out. Yeah. And that, they're constantly looking at their phone and they're seeing this curated life, right? Because mm -hmm. all of our Instagram pages are us in a snap of our best moment mm -hmm. at the best with the best lighting. And, and it's edited. We and are, it's edited. People are editing. I don't post that much and right. I don't know how to use filters <laughs> and I'm too lazy to care. It's probably for the best. doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not my age group. I don't care. Right. I don't have to care. But it's you're seeing an edited picture. You're not, no, you're not, no one is seeing it's someone's life. life the way it really is. I was, I was just on vacation and some of the people I were, I, I was with, 
this one photo, especially someone's waist, looked like it was abnormally small. And it probably like, was. It was probably Photoshop. And she totally immediately took credit for it. She's like, of course. Of course I did I'm that. Like, I'm like, but you live in, you live life as you. Like, you know, you can't live behind this photo. But like, we see you. She's speaking the language that is spoken. Right. If she didn't whittle her waist down, and she's part of that specific social media conversation, people would start trolling her and telling her how fat she was. Right. And she might respond to it because she's speaking that language. Right. She's lost in it. Then, then that's... That's the avenue she's chosen. I do suffer from being addicted to social media in some respects. I make money from it. So it's become a business for me. And it's actually, I make my living from it more See, I so admire than acting. That. I, I, I admire that. And yeah. I have other actor friends. That's their main revenue. And I'm, uh, I, you know, thank God for it. Yeah. Like, it's allowed me a lifestyle. It's allowed me to feel comfortable enough to be married and like to take that leap. Not that I didn't so deeply love my wife, but that I could provide and like make an income, you know? And so for that, but I also know there has to be a balance to it because I feel like if I get too far into it, I've somehow detached from the world. Uh Yeah. Well, no, I think that that's a valid fear. Yeah. And I think we're, we're witnessing generations of people who are doing that. And that may be the root of why they say they have social anxiety. Right. Because they're not interacting with the world. Right. I mean, it's, I saw, my husband and I went to to lunch at a Korean grill, like Korean barbecue. Mm. And there was a chick, I'm not kidding you, for an hour and a half, waiting in line outside to go into this restaurant, to get a table in this restaurant, with, I don't know, her brother, her boyfriend, her, I don't know who the guy was. Right. She only played a video game and was on her phone. The entire time. Yeah. I mean, it was fascinating. I hadn't seen anything that extreme, but I think it happens all the time. Oh, for sure. I think people are just on their phone with without. So, so she was sitting next to an open flame, <laughs> right? And holding the phone with one hand and without looking, just placing beef on a pit. I mean, that and, I'm uh, sure that's a talent in some places. <laughs> I get I was impressed, but also I just thought I'm so glad I didn't I'm so glad that's not part of how I grew up. Right. Because maybe I would if I'd been born 20 years later, yeah, would Candy I be totally crush, susceptible to that? Maybe. Throwing short ribs on the grill. I know. I, it was yeah, you know what though? There is a skill to it. Yeah. But I feel like these are the people that are going to get hit by cars and they don't look up and they fall into manholes. I don't know. Maybe that's just in cartoons. You know what I mean? I don't right. know if there's no engagement with the actual world around you. I wonder I wonder when the last person was that fell into a manhole. It's probably, I did it actually fall into a manhole. Did like, you? No, just one leg. And it wasn't a manhole. In in Manhattan, there uh, little. When I was living in New York City, I was yeah w- uh, to the cellars, the yeah, two doors no, that open. It's sewer. It's sewage. Oh, you went into. So there was like a square. Jesus. Yeah. Terrifying. It was. Uh, it had rained, and there was a puddle, and these two guys were on bicycles, and they had been in the cafe. I used to work at the Cafe Figaro on McDougal Street. Of course. And one of the guys was cute, and I was walking around on my lunch break, and I looked up the street, and I saw him, and he was looking at me. And I was trying to act sassy and look like really confident. And I stepped into this puddle and my whole right leg went underground. Great. And I landed. That hurts, mind you, when you land on your groin (laughs) with your other leg at an angle. And uh, Did he come to help? uh, No, actually what happened was, (laughs) oh God, I forgot. 
right before I stepped in the hole, I was making eyes with him and he crashed into his friends. He crashed into the bike of his friend. It sounds and like they a rom-com. Fell over. I know, and I was trying to act cool, and then I went into a manhole. Were you shooting a scene from a John no, Hughes movie? No, I know, it sounds crazy. Are you sure crazy. this was an Enora Ephron no, film? The only reason why I remember <laughs> it is because it was so ridiculous. But then, actually, the busboy from Figaro saw me in the hole. And I also was just... you. If and you, you married the busboy. No. no I know. It would have been good. He was already married. Ugh. But yeah, he carried me back to the restaurant and I had to go get a tetanus shot and oh, go to the I'm hospital. Sure. And Because uh, I, su- I guess it's open sewage lines. Why? Oh, but I wasn't looking at my phone. <laughs> right. You were just a, trying to be sassy. I, I, was, I, was, I was looking in the at name a, of love. I was looking at a guy on an a attraction. bike and I thought, oh. That I have no problem he with. He crashed into <laughs> his friend because he thinks I'm cute. Hole in the ground. Done. Went down. Ow, my groin. Oh, that hurt. That hurt a lot. Yeah, I don't, you know, the last thing I'll say about it is is that I just feel like, and I I feel like I'll get into trouble because I'm like. I'm afraid this whole conversation is going to get us into trouble. Ah, Well, let's just live, right? At this point, it just lives on my recorder. But like, that's the the atmosphere we're in now. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm afraid people are going to be pissed off that I'm talking about a bachelorette contestant liking homophobic memes that someone will be mad at me like I'm trying to deny him his freedom of speech. Like but that's I, that's why you are so smart and why I've at least listened to people. Because I've gotten juiced up about something and said, I'm going to make a stand and mm-hmm. a well-articulated tweet, especially personal things where I felt like I needed to like defend the honor of my wife yes. or defend, you know, when I got brought into some weird controversy. Mm-hmm. And at every turn, there has never been a time where someone said, yeah, that sounds like the right thing to say. They've always said, give it a day. Think, just oh. take a breath. Like, no one is taking a breath. Everyone immediately types, and they and don't sleep it. on it, and they send it. And that's the danger of it. I just got to take a moment to talk about Spotify. And look... I want to get back to the conversation as much as you do, because I, you know, I realized I was a participant in it, but now as a listener, I'm loving it even more. Okay. So I'm right there with you, but I, I just, I gotta talk about Spotify for a second because, you know, some things were just meant for each other, like, uh, the burger and fries or Jay-Z and Beyonce or me and my psychiatrist, but now It's Curious and Spotify. You heard me right. The same app that has millions of songs now has thousands of podcasts. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite shows and discover new ones. What what more could you want? To subscribe to ours, search for Curious, tap follow, and get every new episode delivered to you. Podcasts, they're on Spotify and they're streaming right now and now. And now, who are you? We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show 
which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. What do you, I, one thing you said before that I thought was interesting too, is that like your husband will tell you if a tweet doesn't work Mm -hmm. is, and I find like my wife is such a good barometer for what's appropriate. That's great. Do you find the same and like, will your husband enlighten you to certain things that you can't see about in what way? He's able to see it the way other people will see it. And right. I'm only seeing it the way it makes sense to me. That's such a gift. And, and he's great at that. But he does that normal. to me too. Because he, he'll, he'll come in and say, okay, is this, a, is this a funny tweet? And I understand why it's funny to me and him. Right. But I also understand how it's not funny <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a typed out sentence. for an sentence. audience of two. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. we'll try and work through it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll... I think I know where you're trying to go. <laughs> so we do listen to each other about that. So you talked about it before. You were born in 1969, mm-hmm. grew up in Massachusetts? Yeah, that's correct. What part? Concord. Concord, Massachusetts. And what, what kind of town is that? Concord? Well, it's famous in the United States because it was where the Battle of Concord and Lexington was, the shot heard around the world, the right. Minutemen, Paul Revere, the whole the fight with the English about American independence. So in I, 1776. I, I've seen Hamilton. Oh, I have not. I know things. Okay, good, good, good. So it's a pretty historical old Massachusetts town. And it's, gosh, I don't know. I left when I was 14. But I guess it was about an hour outside of Boston or 45 minutes by train outside of Boston. Just very, my mom and dad were teachers in a private boarding school. Wow. Uh, So my brother and I. you attended or no? Well, eventually. That was a whole mistake. Mm -hmm. My brother and I grew up in a a dormitory. Was was it like an Andover or Exeter type? Yeah, it's called Middlesex. It was one of the same. Choate? Choate, Groton. Choate's New York, I think, right? I think so. Yeah, and I think everybody used to call it Coke. Coke. Because that was the girls' boarding school, and I guess they did a lot of blow. That's what was. That's what people said in the eighties. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like it was also like the one if you got kicked out of Exeter and Andover. Yes, then that's you where end you up went. at Choate. Yeah, right. Middlesex, where my parents taught, where I grew up, that was the school you went to after you'd gotten kicked out of a couple other schools as well. So it was very wealthy. Most a lot of international students. Right. I mean, kids from all over the world. So. Growing up in the dormitory, my dad was an English teacher. My mom was a ceramics teacher. Uh, my dad also coached crew and soccer. And my mom was was H human, not human resource, hum, not human resources. She taught sex ed. What is that? It's a uh, oh sex ed, sex ed, uh, yeah, health. She, health resources. I can't yeah. remember. It had some name. The and one so where they had, give you the condoms. I don't think they were allowed to hand out condoms, but she had really? a flip book of. Mm. Of an animated the flip book of Petey, the co- Petey puts a condom on, and it's just like a, a condom rolls over a happy penis. Oh. And we had the plastic models of a What if it was fetus. a sad penis? I know a sad penis. Could, I don't <laughs> no, like condoms. God, that would make more sense. That would make more sense. It's more of a reflection of reality. Anxiety <laughs> <Like> penis. <laughs> Why can't you peel the sponge? <laughs> yeah. The sponge. Do people still use the sponge? I don't think so. Are they out there? No, I just Do saw they... it in an old Seinfeld episode. It's a Seinfeld episode. episode. I know. <laughs> where Elaine had to go get all the boxes of the sponge. Right. I don't think the sponge exists anymore, does it? No, I think it's like a Nuva ring now, right? Like... Nuva ring. Is that the thing they implant? Yeah, that's yeah. terrifying. No. Yeah. And then, or no, uh, what they implants in IUD. An IUD. I have an IUD. Right. But it, I always find that it it's so close to IED 
Oh, <laughs> that's a little frightening. <laughs> Which is a little terrifying. <laughs> For years, I did, uh, okay, it was called Depo Provera. I've heard of it. And it was a shot that you get in your butt every four months. But I was also using condoms at the same time. Mm. I was on the Depo Provera because I didn't want to get my period. And you don't get your period. You get your period once a year. Wow. Yeah. Is it a catastrophic period, though, that no, one? No. It's like 12 years of buildup. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> it's terrifying. No, it's like, it's just three or four days. Great. So I didn't have my period for 11 years. And then all of these articles started coming out that that uh, it it made women, they weren't able to smell the pheromones hmm. of men or release the pheromones because it tricks your body into thinking it's pregnant. Right. That's why you don't get your period. But it messes up every natural <laughs> chemical that's supposed to be going on. So you basically pick the wrong dudes. Right. And uh, Did you find that to be true for yourself? I can't blame it on the Depo Provera. <laughs> yeah, you're like, that's just my 20s. I, I think maybe that, yeah, and my 30s. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm sure yeah. every, I feel like everyone's on Depo Provera for, maybe. for a decade or so. Yeah, I don't think, I, but it was, it did feel good to be like, well, it's not my fault. Yeah. That's why I kiss all these frogs. I'm but it wasn't you. like, I didn't date bad guys. I dated great guys. They just weren't the guy for me. Right. You know, no one was abusive or, you know, a drunk driver or a child molester or anything like that. Right. No. Everybody was lovely, but not. And then I went off the Depo Provera and was condoms, just condom, condom, mm. and um, met my husband. Perfect. Then you could just live. There, yeah. And he then the dude was the dude is it. Yeah. So I maybe it was maybe it was partially the Depo Provera. I never understood guys who like like for me. I was just so glad that like there was you know for so long for such a big part of my life I was having sex alone. So the, you mean actual physically you were masturbating? Yes. Okay. And so the fact that like a girl was nice enough to say I'll join you, <laughs> I was like, I and thought, a babe, and a babe, yeah. and she's sweet and I'm, funny. I'm like I have no qualms about having safe sex right now. <laughs> like I just can't believe we're doing the act. <laughs> and like when guys are like, oh, I hate wrapping it up. I'm like, really? That's your biggest problem? Like, um, just be stoked that they're there. Yeah. That they're joining you. <laughs> Wait. Uh, so I want to go back to what you were saying about your parents uh, before we go away about. What I mean, what's it like growing up with two? I mean, your your mom was a ceramics teacher and also health. But what's it like growing up with two parents that are teachers? I mean, it was uh, honestly idyllic. Really? really? Yeah. No. Uh, not only are my parents still married and still in love with each other and happy. I mean, it's ridiculous. Really? I, it's fantastic. They got married when my mom was nineteen. And my dad was 23. Wow. They just celebrated 50 years this past summer in Maine. So they were teachers. We didn't have, we didn't have money, but we were completely sheltered. We were safe. We were living in a, uh, the, the campus of a private boarding school. Right. That I some of the like richest Hogwarts. kids. In a, it was <laughs> yeah. like Hogwarts. It's preppy Hogwarts. We had a pond. We had an ice skating rink. We had... A, a movie theater, a library, and so the kids of the faculty, we were, we were safe all the time. There was no, we were never watched. In the morning, you had breakfast, you went out the door, got on your bikes, we rode all over the place, we went went in the woods. We, there was no danger. Not even in the seventies when kids, these kids were the you know the high schoolers in the right. morning school, 
were so rich and they were all on acid and they did set a couple of our pets on fire i remember they set my dog on fire jesus that was rough but for the most part oh one kid set a ping pong ball on fire and threw it at me um rich i was just an annoying little what's a six-year-old doing hanging out around the teenagers they didn't want us around and you didn't go to school there at six i did end up going to school there because part of my parents payment was if my grades were good enough i could go to this private boarding school as a Mm. day student and live with them and uh, and the teachers were great, and it was you know an accredited private school that did look a little bit like Hogwarts. I mean, it really oh, I've seen them. It's, it's incredible. Beautiful. I I got in, but it was not the right fit for me. I was not. I was not. Um, I, I think I felt really insecure about being a a fac a fac brat. We were called a right. faculty kid, a day student, no money. I wasn't cool. Um, I I was very awkward, um, and uh, and so it, I was failing, and uh, committing petty theft with my friend Nan yeah. Hatch. What kind of theft? Uh, Are we talking like we go stealing from Ca- the school store? No, we go into Cambridge and steal. We go into Cambridge and steal Badass. from the store. That's so shitty because those were people it. just trying to make a living. Do you think um, was there a part of it too where you're just like? Because you see sort of a through line of like, not all, but of the artist type. Like mm-hmm. we get, we kind of like, I remember waking up around, I was a pretty good student and granted I only went to high school till I was like in 10th grade and then Ooh. I- But then you were working. Yeah, I was yeah. tutored on set. But I remember around seventh or eighth grade, I th- it, school stopped having any stakes for me because I knew that even if I finished and did well, I was never going to go to college that I wanted to be an actor. And so oh, school wow. then meant nothing to me. And I feel like if the if the bubble is burst in that way for a kid early on, where they kind of wake up and say like, I just, the, the stakes aren't there for me. It's not life or death whether or not this goes well, then school and adults don't have power over them anymore. And so oh that's how God. it felt for me, where I just was like, eh, I can learn this algebra, but I'm not quite sure I need it. That to me sounds so sad. I, it was just, yeah, I just, and I, I finished as soon as I could and I stopped caring about grades because I just made a decision at 13 or 14 of like, no, I'm, I'm going to be an actor and I don't, this doesn't facilitate that. Oh, wow. I did yeah. not. No. I went to, I finally graduated from my third high school. Like wow. to me, education was. Everything. It was exceptionally important. And it's your parents' vocation. Yeah. Yeah. So there was never a question about education being worthwhile. It was socially I didn't fit in and I didn't become comfortable. I never was comfortable at that school in that world as soon as I was a student there. Right. It was just a bad fit for me. Not, Not every kid can go to every school. It was not right for me. And they ended up not sending my brother there even though he would have gotten in too because they recognized, oh, this is not the environment for our particular kids who are both kind of artsy and unusual and not, you know, that that school was, was really, there, there's a big difference. There's a class difference on on the East Coast. Right. And, you know, it, it, so it was- so much old money. Yeah, and, but, well, but then also we were, we were actually from an old family with no money. So <laughs> nice. we have a great name, but all the money disappeared. <laughs> We've been struggling for centuries. <laughs> yeah, no, 
we we lost our money a long time ago, but the name is great. I'm still in the social register. I mean, I have value in Boston. Oh, of course. But uh, no, no, it just was tough, and I I, I wasn't a confident kid. Um, and and my brother and I both have dyslexia, and and it, at that time people didn't people didn't know. They just thought, oh. And so I, so I struggled, um, to do well. And I did really well in, in English and art and history and the things that I cared about, but education was really important to me. So I actually begged my parents to send me to the boarding school my mom graduated from. And that was an all girls boarding school in upstate New York. And so they had me tested to see if it would be the right fit for me. And cause they were devastated that I was so unhappy at the school where, where they taught, where I was able to go for free. And I was asked to leave. I failed out. Right. Yeah, so they I had to go to my parents and say, we need your daughter to not come. And that's humiliating and sad. And Did your parents leave it at the door being teachers? Because I imagine there would be like, you know, when they got home, were you like, I don't want you to be Mr. Brewster. I just want you to be dad. Like, were they making you do flashcards at home or oh, extra yeah. kind of homework? Yeah, but that really? had always happened. So you didn't mind. It was just regular for you. No. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, but also, also because I think my, uh, my, my parents, they valued education so much. They sent my brother and I to private day schools all the way up to high school. So I went to all-girls schools. Right. And part of the problem with going to the school where they were teachers is it was co-ed, and I hadn't experienced that. Which adds a whole other layer It was a whole things. other thing, and I was a nerd. Like, I wasn't going to be a, uh, you know, a hit with the boys. <laughs> and that's suddenly the only thing that's important to you. And suddenly women were um, competitive. Right. And I hadn't had any experience with that because in a single-sex environment, and listen, single-sex schools barely exist anymore, in, My wife went 12 years. I think it's great. I she think it's, loved it. I loved it. And I went back to my mother. My mother, the school she graduated from was called Dobbs Ferry or the Master School in Dobbs Ferry, New York. And I went there for the last two years of high school and, and graduated like, from there. And I I'm loved home. it. I loved it. I loved it. And came into my own and was making my own clothes and dyeing my hair black and right. spray painting a red streak in it. And I sewed epaulets on everything. And, oh, yeah. And, but I had value. Yeah, you were thriving. In that world. Right. It wasn't just, oh, it's just very different in a co-ed environment. So Because you're constantly looking for the validation from the yeah, other and sex. Yeah, it was a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs and a lot of, you know, th- that that school, it just was not the right fit for me. So I imagine it must be a crazy feeling of, I, I remember my mom once, like in elementary school, was the mom for the day in fifth grade or whatever. And so she like came to be the teacher's aide for the day, uh-huh. was there the entire day. It was probably my worst day ever at really? school because I felt she was invading my thing like I'm like you're my mom at home like here I'm a I'm a wise ass I, like I wasn't a bad kid but like I got my you had friends. your school identity yeah I had my school identity and she was like and like I would sometimes like do something that I knew was a bit out of character that she wasn't used to and I'd get a look from her and I'd be like you're not supposed to see me like oh, this wow. like, I have my friends and my life here and my you know and I, I'm amazing. trading my lunch for really fattening calorie-filled foods, and you don't need to see all this. Oh, wow. The private life. Your yeah. secret life. So I imagine seeing your parent at school every day in some respect was... I didn't, go, didn't, to, I didn't go to any of the classes that they taught, so it was never a conflict. Right. Wasn't your mother a teacher? No. I thought she was. No. She's just bossy. 
<laughs> I like her. Yeah. I like her. <laughs> so when do you make the leap? Like when do you start showing uh, sort of uh, proclivity for the arts and for acting? Like what was your first sort of foray into uh, that? Well, always did – I always did school plays. I always was in a glee club or a girls choir or singing. And your mom's or... creative. I mean, my mom and dad are both. Yeah, my artistic. mom and dad are both very, um, yeah, very artistic. But uh, w- once I graduated high school, I moved to New York City. I got into Parsons School of Design. Yeah. An art college. Not not shabby by any means. Not shabby. Yeah. Um, and my mom and dad could afford, I think with the help of my grandparents, to pay my tuition. I didn't get a scholarship. Pay my tuition at Parsons, but I was working right. to buy all of my art supplies. And and I lived in a welfare hotel on uh, 23rd and Lex. Because it was on the, it was like on 20th on the east side, right? Yeah, it was like, was it 5th Avenue and 18th Street or 21st Street? or I mean, it's a couple blocks. FIT was further north and Parsons was like, Near Washington Square Park, but I think it was like 21st Street or yeah. 20th Street and fifth between 5th and 6th Avenue. But I was only there for one year. I was there for for my foundation year, and I was hostessing at Figaro. That's when I fell into the hole in the ground. Right. Um, my first year at Parsons. I, I auditioned for uh, a play. I auditioned to, to do to replace someone in the play Hurley Burley by David Rabe that was it's a great play. happening. It's great. It's long. Yeah. I don't know if I'd do it again. It's a lot of talking. Yeah, too much talking. As, um, <laughs> no, it's a great play. At Circle in the Square. I was not a part of the NYU uh, theater. And I, I honestly, a guy who lived in a guy who lived in my welfare hotel, right. the George Washington Hotel, he was in the play playing the character of Phil, and he said, you should audition for the part of Darlene. And I said, okay, I did. I don't know how I got it if it was affiliated with NYU, but I did. So I start rehearsing Hurley Burley and went to all of my teachers at Parsons and apologized. I said, listen, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be continuing here. And I was just trying to get away with it so that my parents wouldn't find out. I wasn't, I didn't tell them. Oh, I feel so bad about that now. I was hostessing at nights and on the weekends and... We would rehearse during yeah, the day. Yeah, you were a secret actress. Then I had to move. Then because I dropped out of Parsons, I moved my schedule so that I could do the uh, performances on the weekends and hostess during the week, while the other people in Circle and Square were working. And, I was like, and was your only training school from that point? Like my, doing school plays. Doing school plays. I'd never taken. I'd never taken an acting class. At, nothing. I'd never. And my. My mom and dad came and saw the play, and... And you were incredible. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I had told them... I, I, I had told them... I think I did tell them that I dropped out, or maybe they got a phone call, and they said, you're re-enrolling right now, and I was like, I'm not going to do that. It's a waste. I don't want to waste your money and my time. This is what I want to do. And they said, okay, we're cutting you off. And I was like, all right. I'm going to take care of myself. And I had a job and, you know, it was a welfare hotel. It wasn't that expensive. So I was yeah, you had paying my bills and I had dropped out of college. And they came and saw the play. And afterwards they were like, man, this is the hotel for breakfast. And we met for breakfast and, and they said, uh, you did a great job. You're very good. And my dad said, my dad started crying and said, I am so sorry. I've never seen you act. I didn't know if you'd be any good at it. And what I saw last night, I think you're very, very good. So your mother and I will help you financially if 
if you want, if you want to enroll in acting school. Unreal. But, and as a, I was a shitty kid because, I mean, it ended up working out for me, but what I said was, I don't need your money. I need to do this on my own. Thank you for supporting me. Sure. But I'm not taking it. Which led, the, you know, to years of their fear because I lived in, you know, I knew I had I knew I had a net to land in, though. You know what I mean? I worked really hard, and I was poor for a long time, and I waited tables and went to acting school and didn't have the courage to actually pursue acting because I felt like it was some ace up my sleeve, and what if I tried and failed? Right. So you had an awareness. But I had, I had a safety net, which not everyone has. So With your parents. With so that, my that, parents. If, if things the... had fallen apart, I could have gone home. Right. And I don't know if everyone has that. No. And they had offered to help. So... If I really had gotten into trouble, they would have bailed me out. So I think I was incredibly lucky to have that backup. And I'm glad that I said, I don't need your financial help I'm, and, and did everything on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I did that, but I understand now how scary that was for my parents. That they were oh, afraid. Yeah. They were afraid I was going to get, and I was mugged. I was, you know, someone tried to gamut. kick in the front door. It's New York in the 90s. I mean, you know, bad things happen. Young people alone in New York. And I, I understand my, my parents being afraid of that. I remember, it's so fascinating for me because, you know, my relationship with my mom has been that I've been able to sort of support the family since I was 16. And it's my greatest pleasure because my mom gave up everything for me to be able to do this. Wow. And it's just been her and I. And then I see it from my wife's side where she's got, you know, this three other siblings and the parents have built this beautiful home and safety net in the respect of, and I've seen over the last seven years, each of her siblings go home and regroup for mm -hmm. six months wow. and they all work hard. They're all educated and have careers and are great. But as many people do in their twenties, if they've wanted to pivot or take a moment, a step back and say like, what do I really want to do? They've had that safety net to go home and have, you know, full, I'm talking the entire cable package, <laughs> <laughs> like really, like yeah. delicious dinners and a nice place to live to, and know that I can spend the next couple months unencumbered by the fear of, you know, making enough for rent and to get by. And I think that's kind of incredible. I think if it works, it's incredible. I think for yeah, the most part, as long it's as you don't debilitating. Stay too long. I, I think. Well, it can infantilize you for yeah, sure. I, I, and a lot of the people that I went to school with, they've never made a living. Right. They've only been trust fund kids, or yeah. And and I mean, I don't see any of them anymore. They it 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 appeared to be the worst thing that could have happened to them. There because yeah. I think they feel a lack of self worth. If you don't make something of yourself, right. I think they, you know, you, don't you get that impression? Like kind of. Yeah, there's two, there's two sides of it. Cause then here I am, right. Where I've never had the safety net. And so I've always been the provider right. and yet, but then I can't turn it off. And so I'll have trouble relaxing or, or sometimes yeah. taking, you know, I have a buddy that I work with who's, he's 21. He's absolutely crushing it right now. And he doesn't have anyone to worry about. And so he takes really big swings mm -hmm. and sometimes he hits big and will get a lot of success and a lot of money. And because he knows, that, yeah, I'm going to strike out, but I'll fall on my ass. And the only one who will, who will be affected is me. Right. 
I, on the other hand, tend to take smaller swings and maybe don't go for the big thing because I have to keep everything slightly contained and I'm juggling. Right. And I've had friends say that to me before. We're like, you don't have to juggle every second of your life. Like, be willing to put the balls down for a minute and take a breath and just look at everything. And yeah, sometimes I do feel that stress to constantly provide and everyone's relying on me and I can't turn it off. There is no way to not feel that stress though. Ever? For your whole... For who you are. Right. No, I know. <laughs> it would... It, it's... But but there are two there are two images happening. One is one is juggling all the time, and one is taking smaller uh, swings. Swings, yeah. Because the greater value to you is doing your job well and being safe and caring for your family and providing for them, right? As opposed to I could take a real risk. I could lose everything. We might have to sell the, the townhouse. <laughs> yeah. But if I come out on top on this one. It's more important to you, personally to you, to do the right thing. Yes. But the pressure of not being able to to try it or to risk sometimes is, is something you're going to have to live with. Right. Because, and, and that's going to hurt. Yeah. I mean, you can't not be jealous of seeing this guy who only has to take care of himself. Sometimes. There's no, there's no way to not be jealous of that. However... Does he have a family that provides him with what your family provides you? Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure they're lovely, but yeah, like I, I have sort of seen in a weird way the universe or what have you, how it's taking care of me in that way where I have these incredible support systems in my life and these people that, yes, they rely on me to a certain extent for the financial part of things. But what I get back in spades is like the emotional support and like just having these people that are so in my corner and that you really can't, you can't buy that with money. Mm -mm. So, and it's all that shit. Everything that, everything that I can't buy with money has been provided for me in spades. Well, but you've also nurtured it. You can't say you just lucked out. Yeah. Yeah. Your wife's really nice. She just fell in your lap and uh, your mom, she's okay. You know, (laughs) whatever. She just lucked into it. Well, They're you totally would... on your side. You have to nurture that. You're, you're you... totally. It's a family. It's your family. Well, if my wife had met me before I got sober, or like, I mean, there's no way yeah, I would she never have stuck around. Oh, but she that was your hard work. You got sober, right? That's, you had to do that's that a by yourself. Yeah, that's I can't. I remember being so stunned when you told me because <laughs> I've only known you sober. I, right. I, I had no idea, and I some said something innocuous to you one day, like, oh. You know, you don't seem like one of those fucked up child stars. <laughs> yeah. You just seem so happy and down That's to earth and awesome. nice. And you were like, oh, no, I was super fucked up. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. You So you were like, oh, no, 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 crack. Yeah. What? <laughs> you had a crack problem. I thought you were kidding. I, yeah. I don't, know how, I don't know how anyone gets around it. I don't know how anyone gets around normal adolescence without having a couple, uh, uh, you know, a, a couple compulsions. But especially when you have a specific upbringing like I did or you're living in the public world like that. Yeah. I can't imagine. Yeah, I honestly fucked. think if you – because I didn't start acting until I was 25. Right. I think if you have any success before the age of 25, you're ruined. Oh, yeah. I think if you're famous under the age of 20, you're, you're looking at – that's some hard time. Something rough is coming because your brain isn't developed enough to understand consequences right. and 
what you're responsible for and how people relate to you or when they want something from you and it's not your friendship. Like your brain doesn't know how to compute any of that when you're 14 or 17 or you you just don't. So well, you weren't forced to like when people always will ask me like, well, what, why, why did you have an affinity for comedy or why, you know, what made you funny? And I said, well, I was fat. And so I was forced, it was born out of necessity. So, so many personality traits and social uh, qualities, I feel like are born out of necessity because you want to attract people and get the things you need. But if at 10 years old, you've been given everything you need times 10, you never, uh, develop those skills, yeah. those those traits. Well, your value is just whatever you looked like at that age. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, do you think Justin Bieber is a particularly happy, healthy guy? I don't know. Lindsay Lohan? Like, I just think there is the curse of the child star is it's an impossible situation. It's almost impossible. What kind of attention do your parents have to be paying to make sure you don't feel responsible for the entire family's finances. Right. You don't become a terror. You don't um, question your worth because you're given things or here's some free clothes or here. Like, it's just, it's such a bizarro world. It's so, it's the opposite of a normal childhood. But then do you think there's, I think there's also, like now I see too when I, when I look at actors that I really respect nowadays, and I'll see like Oscar Isaacs, for example, mm-hmm. or like the Adam Drivers who are very like in fashion actors or they're on trend right now, besides being completely and utterly stupid talented. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, these guys went to Juilliard, like they really fucking trained and they learned. And I have so much respect for that. So when anyone asks me, like, if you had a kid who wanted to be an actor, would you let them go into showbiz? And I say, I would do everything I could to have them wait and really go through the training and be equipped with all the skills. So when they finally did, they were ready to go. But I think it would have been a disservice to hold Justin Bieber back. Like that kid was oh, so I fucking, get it. Yeah. you know, like, so then it becomes like, or even me at like 13 and I'm nowhere close to a beaver, but like for me, I got so much self-worth and identity from working at that age. Like if you had, if I had a parent who had said, you're going to sit in a high school that you hate and you're going to take the classes and do the deal and be a kid and at 18, figure it out. I don't know what would have happened. Oh, I also, I don't want you right. to think I'm judging your mom no, or no, no. your child. No, uh, you're uh, not. I, 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 at, but at all. What do you think of that? Because I think sometimes there's like something bigger than a, than a parent can even control. Oh, yeah. Like, I, But you decided you wanted to right. be, You were like, well, high school? Hmm. Totally. Uh, no, no. I'm going to finish 100%. as much as I can, and uh, but this is it for me. I, I know I'm going to act. I'm, I, and, you, and you were. I mean, you did. So. Yeah. It, it's just a very different, it's, it's the opposite of how, how I grew up. And I started so late. But how did you, uh, I'm fascinated, I mean, you went from school plays, which were all good. Everyone's in, quotes, in school in, plays. In school yeah, play. it's right. not. So, and then you immediately transitioned to like this play that's not a light play. And it's not, you know, it's a very legitimate theater company. And mm. so how did you know you were good? Or was it like beginner's luck? Did you have a natural affinity? Like I No. I, I always knew I wanted to act, but I didn't want to try to do it for a living. But I would do like NYU thesis films, like little parts here and there. And I was bartending and waiting tables for years and years, and I was singing in a band. And were you just trying to mimic what you thought was good acting or what yeah. you had seen? Okay. No, I just... Uh... 
I mean, I read books, but I hadn't been to an acting school. I didn't go to acting school until I moved to San Francisco, and that was in 93. And then what did you study in San Francisco? I studied at the Gene Shelton's Actors Lab. And what um, what was that? You know, scene study and and Meisner script or study, methody. It or... was methody. I mean, I don't know if it, it it was methody, but it wasn't like okay, if your character has been held hostage for three days, don't take a shower. It was just <laughs> right. it was just it's basically it's just basically using your imagination. If you can't substitute the, the person you're talking to for someone in your real life who you feel this way about, or right. you know, go to a place where you can find pain and I actually I don't incorporate any of that in acting now now what's your process now now it's just it's just why am I doing this what do I want what am I afraid will happen right and then what am I saying am I actually saying it and the material will if you're supposed to be upset you just have to believe the material Right. That's why the hardest thing is doing bad writing. A hundred percent. But it's all the material. And if something really feels wrong, go to the director or writer and say, hey, is it possible? Would, could I maybe say this? Finesse Don't assume it. because all of this, the original material is how you're there. I'm only acting there because someone else wrote that material. So right. I respect it. But that's, that's why so smart. I only want to do stuff that I believe in now because otherwise I'm just a bad actress. Right. I'm not good enough to make bad shit look great. Is I'm anyone? Not. Is anyone? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like I think there are plenty of people that can make bad things look good. Passable. Maybe yeah, not great. I don't know. But they can enough. bring something to I don't know if I have that. I'm just happy that I'm consistently working. I'm just happy I've been able to do this for a living. Well, but I I don't I I'm not a Juilliard uh, graduate. I don't think I have a gift i think i work hard no i think i work hard you work hard and you really it's funny i had danny chun on the pod who was the executive producer of our show our boss and we talked about how like john and i would sort of have an affinity for and sometimes it was a good quality and sometimes it was born out of like laziness of putting things in our own words to Mm -hmm. make it more comfortable for Mm ourselves when it came to dialogue we were saying how you are such a craftsman that you would say things to the letter the way they were written and you would make it work no matter what. Oh, really? Because yes. I try really hard to do that. So if you saw that, then I really appreciate I you saw it me. and your boss saw it. Oh, that's he, really nice. Thank he you. He seconded that to the hilt. And Aww. it, you know, and it, 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 you just assume to the outsider, like, just say the words because you're the actor. And yeah, of course, that's what, that's your job. But then you become an actor and you see how hard it is, especially if something's not necessarily written in a way you would say it or there's just different phrasing where it can be a simple, you know, 10 word line can be so hard to say. And you always found a way in. Oh, thanks. But that is great. That you're right. That's really nice. That's hard work. I appreciate it. That's I mean, I don't imagine that that was just a coincidence. I imagine that's you at home doing the work before of like, how do I find my way into this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Again, I, I don't think I'm disparaging myself at all. I, I, no, I, I don't think I'm a great actress. I think I'm a hard worker, and I think I value the material. And now, thank God, I've been on a TV show long enough. I've stockpiled enough money. I don't have to do anything shitty ever again. Oh, knock wood. <laughs> knock wood, just right? Just in case. <laughs> now I'm going to get a brain tumor. Oh, God, God, God. it doesn't happen. Just get, get, get some wood here. <laughs> Jesus. Um, you know what I mean? Because, again, the material, it's the material. Right. That it's either good or it's not good, or it's 
good and it's not for you. Yeah. Like, I, I've read things where I just, I've read things that are great where I'll say, I, not I'm the not one. going to cry for three months straight. Right. I'm not as good at that as other people are. Someone's going to hit this out of the park. It's not my forte. I don't want to do it. Some, there's some ways I don't want to be killed. Right. There was a great Blumhouse anthology. They're shooting these like one hour shows mm. that are horror. And I don't want to, I don't want to die the way the character in that thing dies. I can't explain it. There's other ways to die. And then my body gets dragged around. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. When I was 26, I would have been like, anything. I'll <laughs> right. do anything. Fine. And I'm glad I did. It Chop was great. me up. Put oh, me in a garbage oh, bag. <laughs> one of my first jobs, I was beaten to death with a bowling pin by a cross-dressing clown. And my eyes had to be open while my head was being slammed with a bowling pin and my eye was full of that fake blood now the old fake blood used to be spearmint flavored right so when i when i started to wash the fake blood off my face after i had successfully died on film for this short film (laughs) a short um, no less um, it was like someone poured uh mouthwash in my eyeballs but I, I was just happy to work. Awful. And the older you get, you're like, meh, I'm not really good at that. Or I don't want to do that. And or, that's okay. Or this is terrifying, so I really want to do it. You know, the, it's just all whatever challenge. I don't have like a vision board. I don't think I should be Julia Roberts. I just don't try to visualize anything. I just want to be open to any opportunity that what comes. What makes sense. Yeah. And what do I want to do? Yeah. What's the right next thing? I would do. I would do a super shitty movie if it... Shot in, I've never been to Romania. No, no, no. I'd like to go to, apparently it's very difficult to shoot in Hawaii. I've heard that from people who work on Hawaii Five-0. It's tough. I have a friend who was on Lost and he said after six seasons, he was like, get me the fuck out of here. Oh my God. I shot a movie in Romania and that was rough. Was it? Very gratifying. I've never been and I want to go. I well, I shot a cold weather western there that was negative 50 degrees on the top of the Carpathian Mountains. Oh my God, that's where Dracula's from. Uh Uh-huh. And literally, we had to take a special convoy up this mountain that was three hours of just twists and turns. We're there with just the crew, staying at some scary ski lodge by ourselves. I remember we had to build our own roads with like plows. What? And, and at one point, we're there, and the temperature has really dropped, and we have horses out there. And the Romanian horse wrangler slash stunt coordinator slash craft service guy. I don't right, know. And he medic. Was, yeah. He, had, he was wearing a lot of hats. <laughs> he goes up to the director and he goes, listen, it's not a big deal, but um, if frost develops on the horse's belly, it will be minutes. Like this minutes. horse is about to die if we stay out here too long. Oh my God. And I said, that horse is the fucking canary in the coal mine. If that horse drops, I'm, We're all, all... I quit this movie. Like no animals are going to be hurt on anything oh I have God. to do. And it was, it was intense. The movie's not great, but it was a good experience. I'm glad I did it. Oh my God. Cause I get to tell stories like that. You know what though? Now I'm realizing I don't know if I'd be up for that. It's hectic. I, I mean, just know. do a summer movie in, in Bucharest. I don't know. I did say to I did did ask my manager once to I couldn't believe it. I asked my I said to my manager once, I was like, Well, I'm gonna take control of my future. I said, you know what? I really want to work with a monkey. Yeah. Even after everyone on Friends was like, well, that fucking monkey, we hated that fucking monkey, Marcel. <laughs> what a pain in the ass, it's shit everywhere. Oh, no yeah. one wants to work with monkeys. I've done it. Oh, you have? Yeah, you gotta be so careful. Oh, a chimp. I, I've worked with like an orangutan that was as strong yeah. as three Just, men. Yeah. <laughs> like, It'll rip your arms off and beat your head in with your own arms. Oh, terrifying. 
Yeah. So strong. But anyway, you wanted to work with... I wanted with... to work with a monkey, and I <laughs> yeah. went to my manager, and my manager was like, all right, don't you fucking tell y- your agent where you got this. <laughs> Just say you met someone at a party. I have... You can go and audition for this. It's a, You're playing a French veterinarian. The movie shoots... Oh, what I said for her was... Oh, I said I want to work with a monkey, and I want to shoot in like Bali, or I can't. I was like somewhere Polynesian. Yeah, I want to shoot exotic. somewhere like all of it, Hawaii, Fiji, Malaysia. I was just like anything with palm trees. I want to go to. And so she said, "Okay, they're shooting this movie. It wasn't in Fiji. It was like I can't Thailand, Thailand." She said, "They're shooting a movie in Thailand. It stars a monkey. It's the people who make the Air Bud movies." Go audition, but don't tell UTA that Sign I sent you on this audition. And up. I thought, oh, I'm so good. I'm such a great actress. I can't even tell UTA because this is so beneath me. Right. And I went and auditioned, and I didn't get it, and I was devastated. Oh, of course. I was devastated. Those are the ones. Oh, I really wanted that. That's like on the dog day. It's a pilot season when you're auditioning for your like 11th procedural. And for, oh. for me, it's like to play like the computer analyst. <laughs> and I don't – and like I'm so – like, like, I don't distraught. even want this. Yeah, I don't even want it. And they're like, well, we don't want you either. And they don't and cast like, you this. Oh, God. <laughs> so offensive. <laughs> Kill yourself. It's the hardest. Um, uh, I, I just, there have been so many moments like that. But wait, there's so many, there's so many things. You know, it's funny. Back to what you were saying before about acting really quick. Because I feel like a lot of people listening are probably in the biz or, or, or fled, you know, What's fledgling? Fledgling actors. Fledgling actors. Starting out. Yes. And I'm always fascinated with people's method and how they get there. I was I went to an acting class that was taught by Vincent D'Onofrio mm-hmm. a few months ago. And he said something very much to to mirror what you were saying in the sense of he was like, Good writing is great because they've hidden what the scene is about mm-hmm. in nuance and in dialogue and in some subtle action that you have to read three times to actually pick up on this small thing. He's like, the clues are there and you are the detective. And there is a hook to everything. And much like you talk about the want, like, what do I want? So he's like, it's there. And a good writer has made it very hard for you to find it, which is why it doesn't just jump out at you. And yeah, that's bad writing. That's bad writing. And he was like, so don't like I suffer from that thing where I just, I'll see actors be so good. And I'll be like, why does, why isn't it just apparent to me when I read the script of exactly what it requires? But then if I read it 30 times, inevitably I'll pick up on an extra word Hmm. in, in a, in a line or a certain action phrase that I wasn't really looking at at first. And I'll say, Oh, this informs like this guy's scared. Like, and he's in fear of this happening. And I know what it feels like to be in fear of something happening. Like, Mm -hmm. I can I can totally vibe with that or and it's that's the exciting moments to me where I'm like I love acting. Yeah. Yeah, when you find that that hook. When you realize what it is or what the subtext is what it requires. or how you can do it. Right. That's why I prefer I prefer to audition for things. I know I I I understand that at a certain point being around for a while you you get offered things. Sure. And I don't prefer that. I would I, unless it's impossible, I have taken jobs where I was offered a role, but it's usually people I've worked with before, so they know what they're getting. Right. I would rather go in and audition. Make sure you're all on the same page. Yeah, make sure we're on the same page and that what I'm doing is what you want. Right. Because it's not, I'm not going to take it personally if I'm, if you said, oh boy, you're fat. 
Or, you know Jesus. what I mean? Like, if someone oh, I was would like, take that oh, you're a lot older than we thought you were. Like, get out. It's not personal. It's they they need the, the person to do what they need. And a lot of times, writers, producers, directors don't even know what it is that they, that they want. Right. Because they've written the part for Naomi Watts, but they're not going to get her. So then the question is, how, how do we fill this? Because it's all, you know, it's a whole big puzzle. Yeah. And I'd rather they know what I think is specifically comedy. I'm going to do it the way I think it's funny. And if you like that, hire me. If you don't, don't hire me. 100%. Because I don't want to do something I don't believe in. I understand actors being fired. It's the reason why I will audition. I will only audition. Because I've seen actors get fired from table reads. Oof. And I don't want that to happen to me. I, I don't ever want to go through that. I know it happens, and I know that we would survive if God forbid that happened to us. But it would hurt a lot. That shit must Or being hurt. cut out of a, a film or a TV show. I've had that. It that's gotta hurt. It hurts, and uh, I've also heard that too with like Woody Allen and stuff. Where he'll just oh recast and he'll reshoot. Recast. Three weeks in, yeah, he'll just be like, nope. I heard, and this might be a wrong. This might be a a, a, a story that I heard that's completely false. So mm-hmm. I'm giving that it's hearsay, technically yes, hearsay. This okay, is hearsay. Great. I heard something to the effect of on There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day Lewis. That Daniel had made a choice in his prep for the character, I don't know what it was, that just in practice was not coming across. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the correct thing on camera. And so there P.T. Anderson is with the greatest actor on, on earth watching the dailies going like there's something he's doing that's not working. And it's through no fault of his own. It's just one of those things that happens. Mm-hmm. And that... P.T. Anderson, being the brilliant filmmaker he is, had the balls to take Daniel aside while in character and say, there's something that's not working. It's a small thing, but I think you need to see it, and I think we need to make it better. And he showed them the dailies, and they reshot three weeks of scenes. (gasps) And and Daniel, to his credit, immediately was like, I see it. Okay, gotcha. I'll adjust. And like, but what a great... I mean, the, the level of trust... And looking out for each other is like in a collaboration to know that like someone was looking out for you for the things that maybe we just we can't see for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that, and then he went won an Oscar, which wow. maybe he would have won anyway. But it was something where PT was like, "There's just something here that needs an adjustment." And that had to be terrifying for him to say, "Okay, I need." But the only way out of it, the only way out of it is. Daniel Day-Lewis has enough experience to recognize it when he sees it. P.T. Anderson has the confidence of character to risk losing that argument by showing it to him. Yes. Because that's the moment he loses all control. Right. Because if he says to Daniel Day-Lewis, I think something's not working, but I need you to see it, it means Daniel Day-Lewis gets to make that decision. And maybe his hubris or... Maybe Daniel Day-Lewis is an asshole. Maybe he's crazy. He said acting makes him crazy. He's not going to do it anymore. What are you dealing with with that guy that you say to him, I want you to look at the dailies and help fix this because I think something's wrong. Can it, Let's see if we can fix it. And then Daniel Day-Lewis sees it and goes, yeah, okay, I see it. Yes. That's, that's also how much money was spent. Three weeks of footage? A couple mil. I mean, how is Pete sure. Anderson not fired? for that I mean it's all every single step of that is frightening right for every person involved and somehow with the right people it work it works yeah. out because it's in the interest of making it great yeah but everything in this industry is it, there's ego 
Oh, it's not making widgets. Like and it's not, it's not assembling a, a tea kettle. Like every single job in what we do for a living, uh, all of it, pr- property masters, set builders, wardrobe, dialect coaches, teachers, uh, you know, every single job in this industry, there's an ego to it because everyone's basically doing something artistic and risky and scary. Yes. So how anything gets made is amazing. When you think about the fact that everyone's ego is involved, every single person. And everyone to some extent, except inevitably for the director, but then they're at the mercy of the studio and the people with the money, everything you don't, no one really has the final stamp of approval. Uh-huh. So things can be changed. So the property master who picked out the perfect blue radio for this scene because it was so vibrant doesn't know if the cinematographer is going to color grade it in a certain way in the end to where it looks like a weird aqua. Right. And they're like, oh, shit, like you're my radio. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But everyone's trying to do their best job. Right. Because and they want to be hired again. Because they want to pay their mortgage. No one wants to and get fired. they care about their part of the machine. Right. I think to me, it seems more so than what I experienced when I was making frames in San Francisco or working as a temp or waiting tables. There is a specific type of person in every single job position that works in this industry. And it's pride and ego and sometimes fear and sometimes desperation and and but it's a very unique it's a circus it's a very unique it's we're carny profession. people it's, yeah, it's we're a traveling true. carnival yeah and we're all specific in in many cases unless you're on a sitcom which is kind of like the closest to a 9 to 5 that you'll yeah. get in this business you're traveling and you're away from your family and it's ungodly hours and i don't want it to sound like a complaint cuz we're we're usually well compensated but nevertheless there's a reason why there's there's a reason why there's money in this industry, because it's hard to do. Yes. So when people do it and the product they put out has a financial return, they will be paid to do it again. Because it's thousands and thousands of people trying to do the same jobs. Speaking of, and I, I won't go much longer because I don't want to okay. take all your time. So <laughs> speaking of... Um, walking into a machine what was that like when you were doing friends and having that be like one of your it's kind of one of your first gigs ish friends was the second job i auditioned for jesus in la in la and what's going through your mind walking into a show like that was well, it was it what it was it was in its fourth season so it was the number one show on tv i think and i mean it was huge and what happened was uh there, there were a bunch of young women waiting. I had shot a pilot. I'd auditioned for and done a pilot that didn't go. And then the next thing I think was Friends. I auditioned, but at the audition, I was had only been in town maybe a year. And there were actresses who I recognized from movies Other shows. and TV. And they were waiting to go in. And I was like, oh. So when I went in to audition... It was Kevin Bright and Matthew Perry was there. And I was like, oh. Just for the chemistry read? Just, yeah. I didn't realize, I didn't know he would be there. Because you're playing his girlfriend? Yeah. I didn't know it was a recurring character. I thought it was just an audition. For yeah. The, and so I saw him and I, I said, I said out loud, well, I guess I'm your runty alternate. So let's get this show on the road. Wow. Like I just was completely beaten. 
I, and they thought it was hilarious. I I didn't. I wasn't even kidding. I was like, oh well, I'm not no getting expectation. this job. So and, let's read this. And this is when Matt Perry, I feel like, especially like seasons three through six, was doing like some insanely brilliant work it, with Chandler. He was doing, yeah, and it was, and it's no secret, he had gone to rehab. Mm. Uh, Matthew had gone to rehab for. Um, a reliance upon Vicodin after a back injury. It happened. So he'd gotten out of rehab and he wanted to do more physical comedy. And this is when it started. I think it was, this was season three or four. Now I not remember. I mean, I think it was season four, but he wanted to to show that he was healthy and he was back and he was, you know, he was embarrassed that he had gone into rehab. And so he asked the writers to please write something, you know, write big physical stuff for him. And he really yes. wanted like a storyline that would continue so that he could show his stuff. And, and he was great. Um, so that's how that character became recurring. And were you terrified of fucking up? Like what's it totally. like table read and then the well, first you know run what, through? Though? They were all so nice. I mean, right. that, which was also terrifying in its own way because I thought, I had auditioned, I had gotten the job, I enjoyed Matthew, and I met them all, and they were all really nice. I mean, it was a really bizarre, they were very welcoming, which which you wouldn't, like, I think shows that famous and successful that had been on for a few years, people are sort of going their separate ways, and it's just a job, and they, you know, they've had... You're walking into their house. You're walking into, yeah, and so for the most part, if, if you're a guest star on something, just... Shut up and stay out of the way. Like just shoot, yeah. keep to yourself. Don't get fired. But they, I was rehearsing. You know, we were running, doing the scenes and rehearsing, and those guys were like, oh, "You're so funny. You're great." And they was just so supportive and so nice Ugh. that I was really lucky. I mean, I was just like, I was very lucky. But then, the hair guy who had done the Rachel cut. I had a black bob, and he cut it off and dyed it red. And uh, we went to do a run through, and the producers, Marta Kaufman, David Crane, and Kevin Bright came down, and Kevin Bright looked at my hair and was like, what the fuck happened? And we're all standing on stage. Terrifying. like the whole. And the hair guy came out, and he was like, oh, well, she looked too much like Monica. The Courtney Cox had a black bob. Sure. So he cut my hair Iconic. off and dyed it red. It's <laughs> just like, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And Kevin said, I fucking hired her because she had a black bob. You can't do this. And I just turned. It's my first week. I turned, walked up the stairs, put my magazines in my bag, and sat, put my coat on, just sat down and waited. And Kevin Bright came in, and I'm trying, I'm just trying not to cry because it's not, it's no one's fault. Yeah, it's just not going to work out. I'm going to be let go. It went this far. I'm just trying not to cry. (laughs) Kevin Bright comes in, and he slams the door behind him. And he's like, it was almost like a cartoon. He's leaning against the door, and he's like, I didn't hire you because of your bop. You're not fired. I just, I can't have them making decisions without talking to me like this. And I was like, oh, I'm not fired. And he was like, no, honey, you're funny. No, you're not fired. And I was like, oh. <laughs> you just like my sobbing. first big job. Yeah, I was like, oh. and he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't oh, mean to God. scare you. It's fine. So funny. And I was like, pull yourself together. We're going to go back to the run through. I'm sorry. I scared you. Oh, oh so nice. And, it, and I ended up doing six episodes. Wow. And it was, and over the years, like, this has blown my mind. Now, especially now, having done Criminal Minds all together now for eight years, I've been on. I was like, on for six and then gone for over four. Over 150 back episodes. 180. Yeah, I don't even know. Um, you are there, oh, I guess a, I guess a sitcom's different from a procedure. A procedure's like, you'll be there for 15, 16 hours a day. You're tired. You meet new, you meet 
20 new people a week. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's a grind. More of a grind than a sitcom. It's long. But years later, if I would see Jennifer Aniston at something or... Uh, at Home At least goods. someone said something <laughs> to Lisa Kujo, like, oh, I know. And she'd go, oh, I know her. Like, seeing Matthew Perry with... Uh, he's friends with Hank Azaria, who I did a show with. Like, just... And, and fucking LeBlanc. Like, just seeing these people. And years later... They remember that I was on that show yeah. is just staggering to me, and that they and that people were love nice it, and yeah, and they loved that experience. And it's it's the, it, it, that was a really unique show. I think for a show to go on that long and people to still enjoy it and enjoy each other, I think is unusual. I really do. When they re, my wife has it on in the background of the house every other week. <laughs> just a couple episodes. Wow. Just needs her fill wow. because she knows that she loves it. Mm-hmm. I can't take any more of your time. You're the greatest. <laughs> you really can't. I love you. You've been here forever. What time is it? It's almost been, I think we've been no. like an hour 45. An hour 45? Is there is there anything I good... should ask you? Do you want to spill the tea on anything? I, I love that you know spill the tea. That's all I know from Housewives. Real Housewives. Cute. It's my favorite. Real Housewives of Potomac, they like to say that. Are you a Potomac girl? I like Potomac. Beverly Solid. Hills. Beverly Hills, classic. Um, New York. Sure. I do not Great walk, Bethany, Ramona. I, Orange County I watch. I do not watch Atlanta. Atlanta. I've watched <laughs> the first, I've watched four four years of Atlanta. Yes. Vanderpump Rules. Yes. How, I, I'm friends with them. With like half the cast. What do you mean? I'm in there. I'm in their lives. Wait I'm minute, getting I'm getting the, the play-by-play. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, what here's my question. Know. Okay. Come on. Part, because we're on hiatus right now from Criminal Minds. Yes. And we'll, we will start shooting soon. And then I'll work a lot. And my husband and I had to write out a list of what we're going to do while I'm on vacation. Right. And we've Prioritize. done Wizarding World. We did Harry Potter World. Cute. Um, we're going uh, to Michigan. We're, like, we're doing all the things we have on the list. Did you have the butterbeer? I did. Great. I had a frozen one. It was delicious. You got to do it. We have Sir written down on that list. You got to go. To go to Sir. Do they actually work there? I don't think you would really probably see any of them there. I do feel like they work one or two nights a week. And I'm, it's got to be Friday and Saturday, right? I'm good friends with Kristen because she used to oh my date God. my best friend's older brother. What? I know. And then left him to date Tom Sandoval. No. And start this whole journey. And it was crazy because like three years ago when the show was on, my wife's watching it, and I go, oh, there's Kristen. She said, hold the fucking phone. You know her? She's like, you don't walk in here and say, oh, there's, there's Kristen. Kristen. Yeah, you do. That's what Josh Peck does. <laughs> so now we've hung out. I went to Stassi's birthday. No, you didn't. Yes. I've had a full experience. I've met them all. Um, I have Schwartz's number. Oh, I just I've heard Florabama got picked up. Have you seen that Florabama one? Florabama Shore? Florabama Shore. Thank you. They've already had one season. Yes, they've already had one Listen, season. They just got picked up for season two. I don't know if you know this. In April, I did the first ever Jersey Shore after show at, at MTV in no. New York. Are you? Yes. With Snooki, Snooki, who you're not allowed to call her that. You have to call her Nicole oh, because no, she's yeah. trying to rebrand herself. Uh, with Ronnie and the Keto Guido himself, Vinny. See, I've never seen Jersey Shore. Oh, treat yourself. Start at the Should beginning. Should I? Yes. Is it worth... I mean, yes. we now like the same shows, so I'm wondering if you might be right. It's 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 as good, if not better. I it, feel it's like one the, of the first best. season must have been shot on PAL or something. Like, it's going to be so <laughs> degenerated at this point. It's a little grainy. It's got to be, right? What <laughs> was it grainy. shot on? VHS? <laughs> yeah, it was... Yeah. Oh, I don't know, man. It was shot on Betamax. Should I just start with this new one? Their fa- nah. family vacation together start, again or something, whatever it's called? Start at the beginning. It's still now, bringing it back eight years later, the biggest show on MTV. So they're going to keep it... They're going to keep it moving. Oh, my God. See, because here's the thing. I never, 
uh, because I was failing out of I was failing out of Parsons <laughs> and doing a, an off Broadway play and singing in like a democratic semi punk band. I never did the college drinking sex like so to see shows like that like Floribama Shores and Vanderpump Rules I just never lived that way so it's it is it's totally fascinating to me I still at 31 look at those people and go like oh that's how grown-ups live and I'm older than that's most of crazy. them. That's crazy. We're I'm so like, wrong. That's like, not that's, true. Yeah, that's like adults doing like adult things, like fights and bars. Same thing with Real Housewives. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh my God, when I'm that age, I am that age now. <laughs> yeah. But I'm like, oh, when I'm that age, I'm going to have this yeah. many shoes. Walk around in high heels. And I'm going to day drink and yeah. fight with my girls. I love that this is the way we're ending it. <laughs> <laughs> On our reality obsession. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, it took a funny turnaround now we're 45. Yeah, right around the end, it got a little weird. <laughs> this is a real us, everyone. Um, I love you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you this. so You're much, the Josh. Best. Thanks. That was it. Another podcast in the books. How great is she? Wow. Paget, thank you again for gracing me with a hour plus. We actually went on a on like a 30-minute reality television rant at the end of the podcast which I did remove some of it because I was wary that maybe not all of you shared the same love and obsession that Paget and I happen to have with Bravo E and other great reality TV factory stations. But just know that it did happen and it was glorious. <laughs> um, anyway, guys, have an incredible week. I can't wait to keep bringing you more guests. I've been so lucky that so many people have said yes and... I've met new people that have connected me with guests that I never imagined that I'd get on the show, and, and they're doing it. Like, they, they are agreeing. So apparently, what I secretly think about myself is not what I'm presenting to the world, because people actually want to, they feel safe enough to sit down with me for an hour, sometimes in my own home. So, you know, good for me. Anyway, what, what's, what are you guys going to do now? Listen to another podcast? I would actually listen to another one after this, but I'm, you know, I'm obsessive in all things. I overdo it. What can I say? I'm going to tell on myself here. You know, I do. I, sometimes I overdo it, but I probably, you know, I throw on Joe Rogan now, maybe Pete Holmes, huge fan of Pete's, you know, maybe, maybe some NPR, uh, some NPR goodness, some fresh air, perhaps, you know, why not? Maybe some Guy Raz. The TED Radio Hour. I don't know. Listen, I'm a pretty wild guy, and I live a crazy life, and sometimes I listen to multiple podcasts a day, and that's my truth, you know? And that's where I try to live, in my truth. I'm just trying to learn how to be more myself, slowly but surely, whether you like it or not. Anyway, guys, thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye.